Christianity assumes that the distinction or the barrier between the created and the creator can only be bridged by the initiative of the creator. This is the story of God's interaction with creation. When Christians say that the Bible is God's word, we're making a very, very bold claim. The God who has always made himself known has also given us the, the key or the map or the guidelines for how to understand all areas of life in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ himself. In the Old Testament, if prophets are, they're saying thus says the Lord, then they're wrong. They get killed. They do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not so much in the We New would Testament. be a lot more humble if we started killing pastors. Hey, Josh, you grew up in the Philippines, right? I did. Do you ever remember a time where your parents would ask you to do something? You'd be like, but why? And they'd say, because I said so. Every time I ever asked a question. <laughs> so it's not, I don't think, uncommon for parents to pull rank sure. per se and say, because I said so. But I think what irks us the most, maybe as, as human beings, I'm going to generalize here, is when people pull rank on the basis of borrowed power. Yeah, for sure. And so today we're going to talk about the doctrine of scripture and what do Christians mean when they say that the Bible is God's word? Mm -hmm. And consequently, how should we understand somebody who is using that authority to convey a message or to direct or guide people how to live their lives? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's jump in. This is Kingdom Thinking. Welcome, everybody. My name's Hansel. This is Josh, my co-host. As always, we're super excited to dive into these topics. Today, we're going to continue our series on fundamental Christian teachings. Our first episode was on the doctrine of humanity, the mm -hmm. doctrine of man. What does it mean to be a person created in God's image? Today, we are going to talk about the doctrine of scripture or the doctrine of God's word. What does this mean, right? And so there's two things that we're particularly interested in. Number one, what does it actually mean to say that when we open up the Bible, we're opening up God's word, right? What does that mean? Because right. it's it's familiar jargon, familiar words we use in Christian culture, but we want to break it down a little bit. Yeah. And two, we want to ask more of that uh, maybe administrative question of what are the consequences or implications of using God's word and what does that mean about the authority of those who speak on its behalf, right? So this is very important, especially in a culture that is very, very um, critical mm -hmm. or very uh, analytical of its authorities. Right, right. Rightly so. So, uh, Josh, why don't you in, uh, help us jump in here? Yeah, so we'll start with uh, kind of what our theological foundations okay. are as we kind of move into that. And so it's important to notice uh, that there's going to be a kind of a, an assumption that we have going into this as Christians, okay. right? And, and so beginning there uh, and kind of admitting that up front allows us to have a little bit of a starting point from a place of humility okay. that moves us well in this direction. So the idea here for, that we're talking about is that as Christians, we assume that God is infinite and self-sustaining, yeah. right? And anytime we're having a conversation about our interaction with God as humans, we have a propensity, a propensity to center ourselves at that, uh, in the discussion. Okay. And when we're talking about this from a Christian perspective, the idea is always that God is reaching down to us. Yes. And we have to do that first before we kind of navigate anywhere out yes. of this conversation. I think that's, that's really significant and really important. Um, in any book, systematic theology, lesson, course, anything that you want to start diving into yeah. on this topic 
of God's word. It, it is so fundamental and I think so distinctive actually in the Christian worldview, the direction of this communication. Right. And so like, like you said, I wanna recap and, and kind of emphasize that the direction of the communication in the Christian worldview is always top down. Meaning yeah. It's yes. always Precisely. God reaching down yep. to humanity. In other words, it's God making himself known. It's God self-disclosing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is God showing himself for who he is, right? Yes. Now, the reason I think this is important is because in religious discourse as a whole, when you think about, I don't know, world religions or something like that, you'll see different themes or different questions that'll be asked. Some of these questions are like, okay, how do you, how do you get salvation? Mm-hmm. How do you know God? How do you know what's true and what's the ultimate meaning of life, right? right? right. Like, so these are like fundamental questions that every worldview has to answer, mm-hmm. but the direction of them is different. right? And so I think there's a bit of a distinctive here, and yes, obviously I'm biased. I'm not gonna pretend I'm neutral. I am a Christian, right? Sure, sure. I think this is uh, the, a true worldview, but I do think there it's distinctive and, and compelling that the orientation of this question of how do we know God? It always, always fundamentally, like you said, we assume the starting point is we can't, as finite humans, know the yep. infinite unless the infinite um, enters yeah. the finite. And or, even then it will be in some limited capacity, that's right? right? Because that's the right. other receptor of that is finite. Exactly. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but that's super important. Yeah, and then the other thing, uh, we have this distinction between kind of a general revelation and a special revelation. Okay, so right? talk to me about that. Yeah, so general revelation, uh, if you're just you know tuning in or you don't know what that is, right? The idea of general revelation is that God is showing God's self, God's character, and God's nature uh, in the world and, and patterns that we see in nature, right? Paul talks a lot about this in Romans 1, that we mm-hmm. should be able to, you know, all people know in their hearts that there is something that kind of created, right? Right. You can look at the trees, basically, and know that there's something bigger than this, or you pay five minutes of attention to cosmology and you understand that, like, wow, this universe is huge, something probably made it, Mm. right? And and so that's a general revelation. And then specific revelation or special revelation, right, has a... uh, tends to be understood is that as a clarifying lens, right? That kind of sums Good. up the meaning of human experience and knowledge in the world uh, as God's creatures, right? And we would say that special revelation is on its fullest display in the apex that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Nice, nice, good. And so the the logic, the fundamental logic here, as far as organizing this theologically, is that first, Christianity assumes that the distinction or the barrier between the created and the creator Mm -hmm. can only be bridged by the initiative of the creator. Yeah. Meaning unless God chooses to make himself known, then we are in the dark. We're only guessing. Correct. And as a result, kind of either making up our own images or versions of what we think the deity might be. So number one. Number two, not only is the creator initiating that uh, direction of communication, but he's not only arbitrarily, he's not hiding. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think a big, a big fundamental point here that I would want to emphasize is the Christian idea that the Bible is the word of God isn't, I have um, a monopoly on all that is true. And unless you come to my camp, you won't know anything. Right. It's not that. It's the God who has always made himself known has also given us the the key or the map or the guidelines for how to understand all areas of life mm-hmm. 
in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Mm-hmm. However, even those who don't have scripture, who don't have the Bible, still are witnesses or recipients of God's self-disclosure yeah. because, I mean, so Proverbs is going to say things like, be diligent like the ant uh-huh, uh-huh. because when you work hard, good things are going to happen. Yeah, yep. There's another, I think like Proverbs 3 or, or 7 is going to say, hey, if you go messing around with another married woman or, or the, the, the adulterous person, bad things are going to happen. Yep. And so all, all that to say is there's patterns or grains in the world which indicate um, something about the character of God. Certainly. So the way that the world has been made, what we see in the patterns um, in different civilizations, et cetera, whatever the case may be, are a reflection of of God himself. Yep. And so scripture isn't, again, this arbitrary reference. It's what links God's world and God's word mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think this is, I mean... I think that's really significant to understand. How, yeah. how do you think that would that might change somebody's perspective of Scripture uh, uh, when a Christian says, hey, we claim to know who God is? And how would what we just talked about kind of inform or um, maybe buttress or sustain some of those ideas? Yeah, so there's two things that come to mind. The first one is that when we're talking about claiming to have some type of divine knowledge, yeah it should make us very weary of ourselves. Correct. One, because everything that we're doing is through an interpretive lens. Yes. And so functionally, the creator may make the first move and initiate, you know, his conversation with creation. Mm -hmm. But the other, or I'm sorry, theoretically that might be true, but functionally we can only receive it as if we're the ones who make the first move in the sense that like we are walking towards that. So there has to be some interaction on our part and we can only begin from our part. We can't get out of ourselves to see things from the creator's vantage point coming towards us. So it has to make us incredibly humble. Otherwise we end up promulgating positions like slavery as biblical for two millennia. Right. And and so this idea of like the claim on divine knowledge just ought to be a position of saying, this is how I best understand it. And this is how I think we need to you know, move forward from here. But it's always something that ought to be tentative and that we should kind of hold on to that a little bit. Yeah. No, I'm glad you made that point because, um, Postmodernism, yes, meaning, and and I know this is like this is the devil in some sure. circles, right? Sure. But all I mean by postmodernism is the collective realization that how we know things is always determined by different situations. Yeah, subjective context. Yes, the fact that we are males in Southern California. Mm-hmm probably influences to some degree how we understand things. Right, right. Right? So, like, that's, I don't think that's controversial no, to say. No, it shouldn't be. And, and the second thing it leads into then is how amazing, for me, and when I, when I hear this, that, like, we have opportunity to know the Creator in some even limited fashion. Exactly. I think that's incredibly... Despite uh, our social yeah, location and yeah, limitations. Yeah, despite yes. all of the things that that's exactly. hinder us. And so, so this doctrine is both incredibly... Um, securing, mm-hmm. but it's also humbling. Yeah, and and to kind of recap that a little bit, what we've what we're trying to say thus far is that when Christians say that the Bible is God's word, we're making a very very bold claim yeah, to certainly. saying that infinite light, infinite Creator of the universe, we're claiming to know Him, to know Him by name, mm-hmm. and to know His plans, His purposes, because He has given them to us. Mm-hmm. 
However, we are not pretending that we are somehow fully objective sure. or that we are outside the scope of uh, interpretations or biases or anything like that. Yep. And that's that's really significant. That's yep. really important because that leads us to our next point. Yeah. How do we understand how God's word came to be? Yeah. So I this is my favorite jungle to live in, okay. right? The conversation of inerrancy and infallibility. Okay. So right? what, what is that? Okay. Talk to me a little so, bit. So uh, inerrancy is the idea that scripture does not affirm any errors, right? So people who hold this position would say that the Bible cannot endorse anything untrue because okay. God, God's self cannot be untrue, right? If correct. God is the source of all knowledge and wisdom and power and all things that exist that are good, that are right, that are true, that are correct, then what God records in God's word must be true apart from time. True, right? accurate. Yeah, complete, like to the T, right? Like in the most but literal also, sense of what that could But also it's composition. Mean. Correct, correct. And so uh, basically the idea here is if you affirm inerrancy that, you know, you can read an English Bible and it's just as perfect as if you had the original manuscripts, right? The mm -hmm. idea here that like everything is preserved or all the way through. For yeah, that matter. Yeah, everything is preserved all the way through translation, irrespective of time, space, geography, all of those things, right? Okay, and that's what it means that it's God's word. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's and a, it can only mean that. Like it can't be God's word if there's a jot or a tittle, right? That, that is, is incorrect. messed up. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so this is the position of inerrancy. It's a very, uh, very literalist kind of position in the okay. way that we tend to apply it in, in uh, okay. American evangelicalism. And then uh, on the other side of that, you have infallibility, which is kind of a broader term right here. Uh, it deals more with the personal knowledge of the Lord rather than the specificity of the details here. So um, someone who is inerrant will affirm infallibility, but it's not necessarily true the other way, right? Somebody who in, believes in infallibility may not affirm inerrancy. Okay. And so that puts us in this conversation of saying, uh, for the person who affirms infallibility but not inerrancy, can God's word still be all the things that you claimed it was, yeah. right? The True. detailing purposes of his plans, Perfect. the infinite light, the wisdom, Everything. all those things. Can it be that if it's still mediated through the subjective person that wrote those things down Correct. on the parchment? It's authors, yeah. Yeah. editors. The historical occasions, the context, the re or the context, the redactions, all of those all of that. play an now, important role in this conversation. To, to be clear... What, what this question is asking is if by claiming that the Bible is God's word, we are claiming to have true and to some degree um, perfect, perfect in the sense that it's accurate and complete mm -hmm. or adequate. Well, and accurate across all subjects, right? Correct. So not just how to live, not just metaphysical concepts of life and the pursuit of truth, but also like scientific ones Exactly. As well. If we have true and adequate knowledge of who God is, and that's what we mean, that the Bible is God's word, then how does that interact with the humanness of yeah. the Bible? That yeah. it was written by people. It was put together by people. Mm -hmm. There were councils that had mm -hmm. to decide which books are in, which books are not in. That was a, There was a real human process to the recognition of the divineness. Yeah. So when we say the Bible is God's word, how do we in the same breath wrestle with the fact that there was a real human process? It didn't fall from heaven. Yeah. It was pieced together over right. a very long right. time. This is what this question is about. Mm -hmm. So again, the way I understand inerrancy versus infallibility is to hold the position of inerrancy, which is most clearly outlined in the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Please go read that. Um, that position would 
state that for the Bible to be God's word, meaning for it to be true, accurate, adequate, and completely faithful, it cannot have any errors. Mm-hmm. And there's a few different variations on this. One would be uh, verbal dictation yep. theory, which would say that means that God must have told word for word or dictated yep. the words that are there. That's yeah. one position. Another position would be called verbal plenary, meaning that God is uh, conveying the ideas or conveying the message, but it could still have like John's personality mm-hmm. or Paul's Greek vocabulary in it. Okay. Um, so in contrast to that, you would have infallibility, which is going to say, Hey, like, yes, this is true, adequate, and perfect in conveying the purposes of scripture, sure. which is for God to make himself known to restore humanity. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every single word has to come from the mind of God and somehow bypass the humanness of it, or that we have to make scientific claims about original autographs, Mm -hmm. which then got preserved. Um, And so essentially it's, the question is, is this a fight that needs to be picked? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I don't know how you can in a lot of these things, right? If we try to, because when we try and hold on to inerrancy, I think one of the first big problems that we run into is uh, the dissolving of categories, right? And the, dis- okay, the dissolving of genres that, as they apply to scripture. And I think we kind of have a propensity, uh, particularly in American evangelicalism, when we hold on to inerrancy so tightly, mm-hmm. there is this desire to say that everything has to be quite literal when we know that there's different genres in scripture okay, that, I see, I see that merit a different type of mean. interpretation, right? Uh, and so, uh, and we just have like, kind of conflicting stories in, in scripture, uh, just that cannot be reconciled, right? Okay, the, like ending, what? Uh, the ending of Mark says that the women disciples found or didn't find a body. They were scared. They ran off. They told no one, right? That's the okay. original ending of Mark. Matthew, Luke, and John have different endings, right? Than that, right? So they're just, okay. now we would, now in order to preserve that, inerrancy belief, some gymnastics there's a little and, bit of mental. And then aren't there different accounts of like how Judas died also? Uh-huh. There, so right, so hanging himself off, versus, you know... Or he hung himself. Yeah, and then intestines spilling out. Yeah, so so one instinct would be like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just because it's seemingly contradictory doesn't mean it has to be the case. And, like, I think I've heard Craig Blomberg uh-huh. talk about, like, hey, in... Um, or even in, in, Kings ancient, in, in Kings and Chronicles, right, when it's uh, the devil who makes David do the bad thing, or it's the spirit of the, the, spirit of the devil, and then it's God himself... Um, the are you talking about the passage where it says that in God sent an evil spirit yeah, 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 towards Saul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a trip, right? Too, for sure. Yeah. So, so I mean, we we have at least on the surface things that are hard to reconcile, okay. without some type of deeper kind of gymnastics that has to be done there. However, you want to rectify. Right. That. Okay. That's fine. But, that's fine. So, as I've wrestled this, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm still really wrestling with this because sure. I think the instinct to want something like inerrancy makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Because to say that God's word is without error, it's kind of an all or nothing take. There's no real middle ground. Right. So if you want to give up on, hey, like. Well, the middle ground is that the autographs were inerrant and we just don't have well, those anymore. Well, so <laughs> let me get to that. But to say something like, hey, listen, um, historical and different literature studies have showed us that these documents were edited, yep. that these documents had a life transition and stage evolution of them. And to say otherwise is just being a not thinking person. Correct. In, in some ways, to some degrees, mm-hmm. right? I'm being very general here. Okay, so if what you take from that is 
then we can no longer hang on to the claim that our final form, yep. Yep. <laughs> what we have in our English Bibles is unchanged yeah. or without errors. I mean, the consequences of that are honestly pretty scary, at least at first. Because, so what does that mean? It means that on the one hand, um, can we know where there are differences or errors and where there are not? Yeah. Number one. Yeah. Number two, how would I know if there are errors or or not? Does that place the onus on me to stand now over yep. scripture and make a judgment on that. And that's a scary spot because you have to assert yourself as an authoritative exactly. figure in that conversation. And so like, could you feel where this would be really scary for, for evangelicals yeah. oh, or for, for sure. anybody who, who wants to actually just take this seriously? Yeah, particularly when you grow up in that kind of specific tradition, yeah. right? Like when this is something that you hear for the majority of your developmental years, yeah. the idea that it's like, God just didn't dictate and Paul just wrote, right? right. Paul's hand was controlled by the Holy Spirit. Like, well, and that's, that's and just then, how we preach about the And then maybe the Bible. it was Christian communities who then edited yeah. those yeah, documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you get, like, I mean, that's you, scary. Well, you even get to stories of, it's in the 17th, 16th century, right? When the Trinity is literally added to 1 John 5, 7 and 8, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like so that verse like, was an addition there. Yeah, so I like, I know that's a silly example and a little bit on the extreme side there, but it's like, if that can happen one time, then certainly... It could have happened at a certain point, 1,500 years prior to that, when they're making the first, you know, copies of this Correct. stuff, right? And we Correct. see this. We know interpolations happen in Scripture. Interpolation is kind of combining of things. Like, we see that in 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah. And so it's like, that is really scary because it, what it does is it forces us to realize it's a lot messier right. than we thought it was. That's exactly and right. And that's, that's not exactly a comfortable right. position to that's, be in. But, but, it's tension. But that's but that's but that's such an important word. Yeah. Because now we're diving into a little bit of what's called the canonical process, sure. right? But... I want to I want to confront this question honestly yeah, yeah. And, and not beat around the bush and say that when Christians say that the Bible is God's word, we're making a very bold claim, but it's a messier claim than we think. Yeah. It's not neat, and I don't want to pretend like it is. And the reason that I I think we need to go here is because the the converse position is not better. Right. Well, and this is what separates Christianity from things like Islam there where it's like Right. where it has to be blind yeah. faith. There's only one version and I I'm pretty I like I, I'm not an expert on this, but I think the history of of that document is like all the other copies were like burned, so mm. there are no others. Right, right. Like if there are no others then yeah, like it's the only yeah, one you we're have good. left. Yeah. Right. But the, the my the point I want to make here is that the conviction of most inerrantists is that although we don't have the perfect forms in English, we have the conviction that the original one, meaning the one that Matthew and Mark and Mm -hmm. Luke and John and Paul, those that we no longer have, those were perfect. And so because of what's called textual criticism, which means the science of looking at the original Greek documents, Mm -hmm. we can reconstruct up to like 99.5% or whatever the case is in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. what those original words were. But here's the thing though, if you're going to say, I can be an inerrantist because I can have 99.5% certainty of what those originals were, you're no longer talking about uh, what we have now, though. You're talking about a theoretical idea. No, no it's also not 100%. Well, but, but like the thing is that you shift your weight, though, because you're saying, oh, so what I have in front of me, it's not that the... I it's a distinction without a difference. Well, yeah. you're saying that the teaching is inerrant, not that the words are. Sure. There. Again, a distinction without a difference. Like we don't have the, you know, I mean like. So it's moot. There. And we run, I mean, we, 
honest discussion around this reveals that we run into some really hard, like the first mention of the, the gospel writer's names come from Eusebius, the fourth century, right? Like in a passing off comment, right? That he makes. And so it's like, like it's not, there is nothing about this that is clean. Exactly. There. And when you try to stand in the position of inerrancy over and against the, the preponderance of the evidence so staunchly, yeah. it moves us way too far into the camp of like, almost secret knowledge, exactly. right? Like it's closer in my estimation to Gnosticism it, yeah. than it is to like a true genuine conversation yeah. about what is real and what's Good. not. And so before we get too, too into the outer skirts of all this, I want to, this is what I propose. And this is what I have, I have found solace in my spirit sure. <laughs> by this conviction. And it's this, when we say that the Bible is God's word, on the one hand, we acknowledge the messiness of the human process, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, we acknowledge that the Spirit of God was guiding that yeah. process. Yeah. That if there are uh, redactions, which which means like additions, yeah. um, editing processes uh, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, that we trust that it was God guiding God's the believe... perfect spirit guided people exactly to make the canon was be what it needed to be. Was the believing communities was guiding those editions and was guiding what we have and, now. But this is the this is the case in my estimation for infallibility. So that's so strong is like God guides the brokenness of humanity. This is the story of right. God's interaction with right. creation, and yeah. this is the top down approach that we talked about at the top of the show. It's like God works with us in our limitation to provide adequate understanding of special revelation in the apex yeah. of humanity that is Christ right. to get us to where we need to go to fulfill the meta narrative of scripture which is God's restoration of humanity back to God's self. I think so. And so I think the idea of an errant problem solved <laughs> is I think there's a good instinct there. I think we need something a little bigger Wider. that can yeah than that. Uh, but the last thing I want to do here is let's talk about some applications for sure. for church and today. Number 1 to say that the Bible bears the authority of God is one thing, but do people who use the Bible bear that authority too? So in the Old Testament, right, the prophets are saying, thus says the Lord, yeah. and you can't mess around yeah. with that. Is this what's happening when people preach? Functionally. They're saying, thus says the Lord. In some capacity, yeah. I mean, when we're, when we're speaking from Scripture and we're interpreting, when I get up on the pulpit on Sunday mornings and I'm interpreting what I'm doing through my studies from, you know, what I read out of yeah. scholarship and my own intuition you with the Spirit. You are taking prophetic there, authority. There has to be on some level because yeah. people are looking to me right. as some prophetic authority. Yes. There, right? Like whether or not that's what I want, it's what's being imbued to me from the general audience right. there. Yeah. And so that gets tricky, right? And oh, I, I, know, yeah. I know people can go back it's and terrifying. forth on this and that's fine. Um, so this is the thing though. In the Old Testament, if prophets are, they're saying thus says the Lord and then they're wrong. They get killed. They do. Yeah. Um, yeah, not so much in the. We New would Testament. be a lot more humble if we started killing pastors. <laughs> it'd be a way. It'd be a way different conversation right? up here. Yeah. So that um, deters me. Which a I'm not little. saying, by the way. <laughs> that that kind of makes me pump the brakes a little of bit course. to say like, uh, it is, but it's not. Yeah. Right. Right. Functionally, it is. Yeah. But we're not. Any good pastor is not trying to take that level of authority. It is just something though that people have a propensity to grant okay. their ministers. All right. Number two. How do we prevent people from taking on that authority to hurt people and abuse them and manipulate them and overuse that power? Old Testament killings are an option in this part of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, I mean it's always going to be abused. There, there's no way, there's are no you, way to I, avoid I this don't think conversation. We have to be that cynical. No, it will, it will, it will always be abused because humanity will always be broken until we're fully well, sanctified. Sure, but how do we prevent it? How should we work to stop? We it? have to, we have to, we have to, we have to make humility 
be the number one thing that we train in pastors, in seminaries, in conversations, in yeah. our Christian walks. It has to be above all else, above all intellectual knowledge, all growth, all of that has to come from the lens of humility. Okay, okay. Last thing. If somebody is saying, now hold on, you guys are just assuming that uh, the Bible is accurate. You're assuming that it's trustworthy, and you're also ex- assuming its exclusivity over and against other religions. If somebody maybe has further questions about the step one, how do I even know it's reliable? Where do you think they should go? Man, I think looking at first of all, I, honestly, I just started googling when, okay. I, when I started going through these processes myself as a young, you know, as a young Christian. Like I just started googling everything. Okay. So, uh, I mean, that's that's kind of hit or miss. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so, so Bruce Metzger uh, has a great book on textual criticism. Yeah. right, is a good place to start. Bart Ehrman, who's not a Christian, talks <laughs> yeah, about scripture and in, in the reliability of the New Testament. He doesn't affirm Jesus as God, but he affirms the reliability uh, of the New, the Testament, New Testament in a lot of ways. Good. Uh, and so, those would probably be two easy places to yes. begin. I would say that. Doubting and asking questions are a good thing, and it, there's a good way to doubt, to yep. ask questions, to seek this truth. So, what do you guys think? Um, what What do you think we missed? We are saying that uh, by claiming that the Bible is God's word, we're making a bold and yet humbling yeah. claim. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Make sure you like, follow, and subscribe, and check out our Juice app on whatever device you use, so you can check us out wherever you go.